It's nice to have a little sunshine when you come to Amen Bible Study, isn't it? We'll change that here in a few weeks. Get it nice and dark for you again. Hey, uh, we are getting close to having all of our small groups and mentoring relationships all paired up. There's still uh, availability if some of you would like to join a group or have a mentoring relationship, uh, either as protege or mentor. Uh, please let Don Riley and that group know. Uh, we encourage you to do that because uh, we talk about things in here uh, in general principle with general applications, but when you get in a one-on-one relationship or you get in a small group, you can really apply it uh, up close and personal to yourself and get some, some guys in your lives who will encourage you personally and directly in the things that are important to you. So we really encourage it if you if you can arrange to do that. So if you've not signed up before, go ahead and do it because they're coming to, toward the end of this initial period and they'll have us all matched up here soon. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We've been talking about sex a lot around here lately. I think this is the last talk on that. Uh, no standing ovations. Um, we'll get on to uh, topics like whether to uh, eat meat offered to idols. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with my life? You will see. It has a lot to do with your life. Uh, as we'll examine next week. But um, uh, we're going to conclude chapter 7 today, and we looked at uh, in 5, 6, 7, and 8, uh, 5, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul is very concerned about the sexuality in, in Corinth and about the changes that need to take place with these men who have become Christians. Uh, they, they really need to look at uh, sexuality differently, and they certainly need to conduct themselves differently. And they needed to do so in a world that was awash with a different view and was a very sensual, sexualized world. And it's the same world that we live in. So that's the reason 1 Corinthians is so applicable to our, our time uh, in, in the church's history. Uh, we live in, a, in an age when we're being constantly tempted and encouraged to go in another direction. And the Apostle Paul keeps reminding us how important this is. Well, last time we looked at what we called sacred marriage and looked at the Christian view of marriage and how it differs from uh, both the pagan view and also the legalistic or moralistic uh, view that sometimes is found in the church. And we saw that we must uh, love our spouses and we must learn how to love a woman uh, who has a very different idea of the relationship and especially the sexual relationship than we do. We also learned uh, why it is that we must not separate from or divorce our believing spouse and what we do if that happens to happen uh, to occur to us. And then uh, we saw that we are not to initiate or to forbid divorce with unbelieving spouses. So for example, if you become a Christian after you're married and your spouse remains a non-Christian, uh, you're not to divorce her or neither are you to forbid her leaving you. In other words, Paul says you're called to peace, and if she wants to leave and you can't convince her to stay, let her go, and you would be then irreconcilably deserted and free to divorce your wife. Those are the practical teachings that Paul gave the Corinthians because they had so many of those circumstances in the church, just as we do. And now we're going to turn to verses 25 through the rest of the chapter, which is dealing with what we're going to call sacred singleness. So Paul is addressing the sexual and romantic lives of everybody in the church, all the adults, uh, those who are uh, single, those who are married, those who are widowed, uh, can they be remarried, and so on. We'll get to that uh, later on in the text. Uh, he's laying out for us an ethical life that reflects the life of a person who has been loved and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn then to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, verse... 25, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Now concerning, now notice those words, now concerning, just like we saw in uh, 7.1. Now in 7.25, he's taking up another issue that came to him by way of the letter. Remember, he's responding to several questions they're asking. They asked him about this stuff. That's the reason he's giving it to them. Uh, we know that's not the only source of his information. He's also responding to reports from Chloe's household but this now is responding to their letters. Now concerning the betrothed. And let me just stop here. The word betrothed uh, is a word which also means virgin. It Generally, it can apply to men or women, but here it seems that the Apostle Paul is applying the word to women. 
generally speaking about young women who were eligible for, for marriage and had been betrothed or promised to a particular man to be married when she reached uh, uh, pubescence. So she's betrothed, she's promised, she's a virgin waiting to be married. And he's speaking about that issue about whether they should be married or not. Let's listen to his argument. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as those they, they had none, as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. For whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Wow. As Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, said about this text, this is not normal Paul. Uh, he starts off by, by saying in verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. Earlier he had said, the Lord, not I. So, and then he was saying, I, not the Lord. That doesn't mean that it's not authoritative scripture. But he's simply saying that in the one case, he has a saying from the Lord. And, uh, and it had been passed down to him from the other apostles, or he heard it himself directly from the Lord. And in other cases, he was giving it as inspired Scripture through himself without having a saying from Jesus. In either case, it's authoritative Scripture. But here, this is a (laughs) most interesting section that befuddles a lot of scholars. They can't quite figure out why Paul is playing both sides of the street. It seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He says it's better if you stay single, yet you haven't sinned if you marry. So you, you do well if you marry, but oh, you do a little better if you stay single. And you go, Paul, would you just say what you mean? Paul usually doesn't have any problems being very direct. And so scholars wonder, why is he talking like this? And he, here's, I think, the best answer. Remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians who were living in a very sexualized culture when they came to Christ and realized the horror of the things they'd been involved in, a lot of people swung the pendulum over entirely the other way and said, let's just be done with sex. 
No sex at all. Just forget it. And you, you pick that up in chapter 7 at the beginning when even in marriage they were saying, sex is evil. Let's just not participate in it, even in our marriages. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. <laughs> That's not the solution to a sexualized culture. If you're married, not only can you have sex, but you must have sex. And as I mentioned, that's a lot of men's favorite Bible verse in the Scriptures. And they pass it on to their wives and put it on the mirror, you know, in the bathroom and all kinds of things. Paul was saying, you don't, you don't respond to libertinism with moralism. And I find a lot of churches who try to do that, who will try to hammer people as a response to what's going on in the culture. It always backfire, backfires. Just watch the succeeding generations, the fundamental, recovering fundamentalists, you know, fundamentalists anonymous, uh, who have grown up in homes that were moralistic and legalistic. And where do they end up going? Do they end up being full-blown believers with loving hearts for Jesus? No, usually they end over back over in the libertine camp. So the answer to libertinism is not more rules and more legalism and more anger. It's a loving, beautiful genuine, authentic relationship, both men to men and, and, and in marriage, men to women. So that's what the, the Apostle Paul is encouraging. Now when you come to verse 25, here you have a very strong group in Corinth who is saying we just think we need to remain single, just remain celibate and no sex and you know, just slam the door on that whole lifestyle of sexuality. The Apostle Paul here is, is in a difficult situation because he agrees with celibacy. What he doesn't agree with is asceticism, the denial of all human pleasures or bodily pleasures in this life. Paul does not agree with that. And you'll see that as we enter into the next section on whether to eat meat offered to idols, which applies to us in our day of alcohol and drug use and so on. We'll see how that applies. The Apostle Paul is not in favor of asceticism, but he does agree with celibacy for himself and many other people. So what he's nuancing here carefully is to agree with their celibacy and not agree with their asceticism. And of course he's writing, you know, he's not there presently, he's writing from afar off, so he's trying to be careful not to have them misunderstand exactly what he's saying. I believe that's the reason you find the Apostle Paul playing both sides of the street. And he is playing both sides of the street. Basically what he's saying here is that marriage is a good thing, it's not sinful. So you ascetics are wrong. That any exercise of human bodily pleasure is wrong. You're wrong. So he says marriage is not sinful. But he does it through the back door. Through saying, yes indeed, uh, those of you who have uh, vowed to celibacy, it's a good thing what you're doing. You're staying more focused in your life, but be very careful. Don't judge the rest of the church and tell them all <clears throat> that they must do the same thing you're doing. And often, often we, we have that with certain disciplines that we have for our own lives. Then we, we end up acting as though everybody else in the church should use the same disciplines we do. I mean, the best example actually is uh, uh, alcohol. Some here would say, I'm just not touching the stuff. I mean, there's, there's so much danger with alcohol. I've grown up in an alcoholic family and I've seen abuses and I'm just not going to have anything to do with it. Furthermore, I don't think any of the rest of y'all should have anything to do with it. Now there you cross the line. You'd lose about three-fourths of this room if you taught that. And the other fourth would say goodbye uh, because those who have that discipline and who find joy in it sometimes make the mistake of generalizing and saying everybody should live that way. The Apostle Paul would oppose you. He would say, good thing. That's, that's a good thing that you're going to live without, without wine. That's great. That'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. That's a good thing. And he, that, he, might even say, he might even say, I don't know, that's better. But he would say, you're not sinning if you drink a glass of wine. So you, you folks chill out, no pun intended. And so he's saying the same thing here about singleness. He's saying it's a good thing. But let's, not, let's be very careful not to say to those married folks that you all have sinned or that you've taken a second-class citizenship. So let's take a look now at it in our, in our text in more detail. And in the first 11 verses, notice that he says, we do well to remain single. He agrees with this. And he even says it with respect to the betrothed. 
Uh, it's not quite our engagement, but it's something like that. You know, that parents have said, you know, promise this child to this man. Now they're in the church. And now they're, they're re-examining their situation. And he, look at his argument. Uh, he's saying, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Once again, scholars debate, what is this distress that he's talking about? Frankly, we don't know. Uh, it could be uh, some political troubles in Corinth. It could be a, you know, some sort of economic recession. It could be the oppression of Greeks and Romans on the church uh, th- that were um, uh, oppressing them. We don't know exactly what the distress is. But Paul is saying in view of that, why don't you just chill out on the marriage thing? If you're married, stay married. If you're not married, stay single. He said, that's, that's, that's my advice to you. And then he makes this argument. Uh, look, and it recalls verses 17 through 24 that I want us to look at in just a moment. He says, are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be free. That is, don't divorce her. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But, here he goes again, if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. The Apostle Paul here, is re- it, he's building on the argument he's just made. And we, we were rushed a little bit at the end last week, and we didn't look carefully at verses 17 through 24. But there, Paul, if you remember, is making the argument that basically when you were called to be a Christian, you had a job at that time, you had a marital status, you had an income level, you had a place where you lived, you had circumstances. And Paul is saying there's no reason when you get converted as a Christian to change all your circumstances. Sometimes in the enthusiasm of a conversion, and I've had that as an adult, so I, I, I have experienced that, there's an immediate question, well, you know, since I chose to be a banker uh, when I was not a Christian, then surely that's not what I'm supposed to do now because now I'm converted, I have a different view of things, and if, you know, if I'm converted, I, I would have a different way of assessing what kind of career I should be in, so I ought to change careers. Maybe I need to go into full-time ministry. That's, and that's, that's a, not a bad thing to ask. I mean, obviously I asked it pretty soon after my conversion. But the apostle is saying that is not necessarily the case at all. In fact, he's basically saying in verses 17 through 24 to back up for a moment, He's basically saying just the opposite. Why don't you make your first assumption that you can be happy right where you are? Just stay where you are. Because why? Because your circumstances are not the most important thing in your converted life. Whether you're a banker or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever you are, that's not the most important thing. Precisely because it's not the most important thing, it's the last thing you need to think about changing. There are a whole bunch of other things you need to think about changing. Like the way that you, you deal with your wife. Like the way that you manage your finances. Like the way that you rear your children. Like the way that if you're single, you date other women. There are a lot of things you need to change. Like your, the reading material that goes into your brain. Like the movies that you watch. Like the time that you give away for the poor. And the money that you give away. There are lots of things to be changed. But your working circumstances and certainly your marital circumstances are not the ones that need to be changed. So he's saying when you become a Christian, yes, there are all kinds of changes. But not your outer circumstances. It's the way you're changing on the inside and the way you're affecting those outer circumstances. So he says, he even goes this far. He goes to the lowest place on the economic and social totem pole. He says, even if you're a slave. This is in verses 17 through 24. You don't need to strive to be free. Now he goes on to make this very important point. However... If you get your opportunity to be free, take it. Use it. So in other words, we're we're not into self-abuse. We're not into holding ourselves down. If, if if, If the boss says, hey, would you like to make twice as much income with the same number of hours per week doing something a little differently? Uh yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. No big deal. But that that's not the biggest deal in your life. But at the same time, you're not into self-abuse. You get an opportunity to improve your status, take it. Why not? And use your status for the benefit of those who are behind you and below you. 
I always say to wealthy people, look, don't feel bad about making all that money. Keep making it and keep giving it away for heaven's sakes. So if you've got the gift of making money, make it. The, 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 the problem is not on the intake side, it's on the outflow. <laughs> That's where the problem is. Get it going out. And if God's giving you the ability to generate that kind of income support for folks who need it and for ministries who need it, get going. That's great. So there's nothing wrong with taking it in. It's just hoarding it for yourself. But he's saying here, if you get an opportunity to get free, take it. And he says, if you were called as a Christian, when you're a slave, you need to remember something, you're the Lord's freedman. And if you were a freedman when you were called, and even if you were top of the social ladder when you were called, if you were the emperor when you were called to be a Christian, remember this, you're the Lord's slave. So he's showing us that the outer circumstances that so often define our lives in our minds are not the things that define our lives. What define our lives is whether we belong to the Lord. And if we belong to Him, we own the cattle on a thousand hills along with the Lord Himself. We own the universe and the cosmos, all the heavenly bodies. They're ours. They're at our fingertips. So why are you going to worry about your outer circumstances in this three score and ten period of your existence. That's the basic argument for contentment. The Lord gives us everything that we need. We're to find our contentment in Him, and therefore we don't try to suck out of life everything that we can get out of it. Because we already have infinite possessions in Christ. That's the mentality. It's true. We're not living a fairy tale or a myth. We're living out reality. We're going to find it out real soon when we go home. So, In light of that then, we don't worry so much about our outer circumstances and we don't frantically try to climb the ladder. Some years ago, uh, I was in uh, uh, Colorado, I think it was, and there was a little group of us, and this is one of the more delightful moments of my life, a little group who was with uh, Dr. Peter Drucker, if you remember, sort of the, the world management expert for years. He's now gone on to be with the Lord. But Dr. Drucker was there, just stream of consciousness. And he was probably in his mid-80s at that point. And uh, he was just sharing about life. And, uh, you know, he's published so many books and written on so many issues, so brilliant in his management theories and so on. It was just a pleasure to listen to him. But I remember this portion of what he said. He said that the word success that we use so commonly today, he said, let me tell you, back in Central Europe from where I came, a hundred years ago, my father and grandfather would tell me about life there. And he says, I want to tell you something. The word success didn't exist. There's no word for success. Climbing the ladder was not even in our mentality. He said, let me tell you how it worked in Central Europe. Everybody lived in a little village. And every village would have, you know, the school valedictorian, somebody who was really bright. Uh, and for that person that one person in the village, they would be sent off to college. And the neighboring banks in the other villages would cooperate together to help fund that one student to go off to university. And everybody kind of felt sorry for him. He was the one dude that had to leave the village. Everybody else stayed in the village. If your dad was a, a, a craftsman of some sort, you learned that craft and grew right up in the business. And that's what everybody did. There was no upward mobility. He said, what you men need to realize is that that's a 20th century concept. And it's a concept that is eating your lunch. It's driving you crazy. The idea of trying to be upwardly mobile and get to the top of the heap, he said, it it never even crossed the minds of those of us in these little villages 100 years ago. And we have to realize that we're living in an age that it just has nervous energy of having to get ahead all the time. The Apostle Paul is saying, stop it. You're doing the same thing in your sex life. You think, well, you know, I'm generally happy, but man, there are all kinds of opportunities around here and I'm not taking advantage of them. And we just have this mentality of having to grab for everything that we can get. The Apostle Paul says you cannot live the Christian married life nor the Christian single life without cultivating contentment. If you want to know really how to do it, go to Philippians chapter 4, read the apostles' letter from prison to the Philippians, and hear him say to them, thank you so much for the gift you sent me, because frankly, you know in prison in those days, you didn't eat unless your friends fed you from the outside. You didn't get three squares in the prison. 
You didn't get clothing. You didn't get supplies of any sort. It all had to be brought from the outside. Paul's in Rome, imprisoned. The Philippians send Epaphroditus 600 miles on foot to take supplies to Paul. He says, thank you very much. And you know Paul was greatly relieved and greatly appreciative of the help they sent him. But he made it clear for them to know, I rejoice primarily for your sakes because you've made an offering to the Lord through this gift that you've given to your missionary. I do appreciate it, but I want you to know this. I've already learned to be content without it. Some thank you note, isn't it? But he wants to be sure that they know how he has truly learned. He used the word learned. Learned to be content whatever his circumstances. Why? Because Christ is his sufficiency for every situation. So those of you who are very frustrated with your singleness, those of you who are very frustrated with your lousy sex life in your marriage, here's your answer. Find your full contentment in Jesus Christ. You say, boy, that's a simplistic preacher answer. It's biblical. Don't give me any grief. It's biblical. It is simple, but it's not simplistic, and it's not easy either. It's a very simple answer. And the most important things in your life are simple, not easy, simple. And this is it. You find your contentment in Jesus Christ, not in any woman or any imagination of any woman. Now that's the bedrock foundation on which he's building his argument now when we come to our verses here. And he's, he's saying, okay, you do well to remain single. If, if you're unmarried, you can remain that way. If you're married, remain that way. But he said, on the other hand, you haven't sinned if you married. So he's providing for us an encouragement to singleness if we're single without telling us we've sinned if we married. Now look at verse 28b. We're going to see three major reasons, new reasons he gives here beyond that rock, bedrock foundation of contentment. Three reasons why we do well to remain single if we're single. First of all, the single man avoids some worldly troubles. And the word tr for troubles there in 28b is the word for tribulation. This is no light word. <laughs> Those who remain married, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. So it sounds like Paul has some experience. Some think that Paul was widowed, that he had been married earlier in life and was widowed. There's no evidence of that. People think that because in Judaism, it was considered an obligation to be married. And since Paul was not converted until his adult years, the assumption is, he probably had a wife early on uh, in his adult years. We don't know that for sure. But for now, we know he is single. And for whatever reason, he has some observations. He's either experienced it, or he's been observing the dealing with all of his friends. You remember that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So you not only get your wife, you get her mother as well. And Paul is saying, uh, those who marry will have worldly troubles. All kinds of troubles. And it's true, isn't it? Um, I'm thinking about my wife right now. She's got worldly troubles because she's married to me. Uh, she's trying to fix our kitchen, and it's been a mess for weeks. Just being in the middle of chaos, all just managing household. Uh, troubles, troubles, troubles everywhere. And the Apostle Paul is saying, look, if you're single, you look on the other side and you say, man, that's an attractive life. You know, I really want that for myself. And then you get over there and you say, every once in a while, let's admit it, sure would be nice to be single again wouldn't have so many troubles. Uh, and Paul is saying, look, it's a good thing to be single and don't forget your advantages. You are delivered from some troubles. You are. And yes, indeed, those of us who are happily married, uh, I, I don't want to be anything other than married. I actually love my wife and we have a great time together and I would be very lonely if she were not here. And for those of you who have been married and then been, win wi been widowed, I want you to know I, I can't imagine the grief and sorrow and loneliness that you go through. I've tried to imagine it, but I just can't get there. My mind won't go that far. Uh, and so I know it's, it's a very lonely, troublesome experience to be single when you don't want to be single. But on the other hand, the Apostle Paul's reminding us of something. Be sure and count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God hath done. And if you're single, believe me, He's delivered you from something. And that's all He's saying. Just be thankful. Single people, be thankful. There's no reason for single people in our church to go around hanging their heads believing that they're the ones who've been left aside. 
And sometimes the evangelical church sends that message because all we talk about is marriage. We never really talk about the single life. Paul is saying you are delivered from some things. We'll see what you do with that deliverance in a few moments. But you, you have a certain freedom that's to be used. We're free to serve others. And a single person is free. It doesn't have as many troubles. Remember I was quoting the Roman Catholic monk, Ronald Rollheiser, who said Jesus was single for two reasons. One is to identify with those who are lonely, which he did. But also, not giving himself to one person, he could give himself to the world. And that's the way that single folks need to look. And the church needs to lift up the single life again. Uh, as one of my Protestant friends says, we need to remonk the church. We need to reestablish what it means to live a godly single life in Protestant churches. And that is, we need to elevate the single life. I, I sometimes think that uh, in both Protestant and Catholic churches, uh, we need to think about how single people will live in intentional community. And sometimes that intentional community is to stay with extended family. And in the West, we're pushing people out the door by the time they're 22, and if they hang around to 26, we're wondering why you're still in the house. That's not the way the, the world works almost anywhere else in the world. Basically, anywhere else in the world, if you're not married, you stay with your family in community. And I don't know why it is we think that we have an obligation to move people out of the house and that they're not being responsible if they're still living with parents. What they can do is help pay the rent. Take them into community, into adult community. I think we need to rethink that. I also think that we need to rethink the fact that we just send people off into this apartment and that apartment and that apartment instead of buying a house together and living in community. And men can, you know, four men can buy a house and live in community together. Four women can do the same. I think, I think those who don't have a tradition of monasteries need to think again about single life and elevating it. And then those single communities take on special missions projects because they don't have so many cares and worries as these married people do. And I know they're very busy people, but they do have some liberties that married people don't have. That's the kind of thinking the Apostle Paul, I think, is imposing upon the church right now. We need to listen to chapter 7. I think our churches are way out of line. And we're only addressing the Christian nuclear family. We're not addressing single uh, adult life as we ought. He says, the single man avoids some worldly troubles. There's some advantages to it. Then look at verses 29 through 31, and he reminds us the end is near. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, once again, the uh, scholars, New Testament scholars, will wonder if Paul believed that the the Lord Jesus was going to return in His own lifetime. Or if Paul believed it was going to happen in a very few years. That's possible. I don't think that that's necessarily what he means here. I think he means just what we're seeing. The end is short. 2,000 years is short. Remember, in the Lord's eyes, Peter says, a thousand years is but a day. So I think it's been two days since He ascended. So we're waiting two days. The time is short. And the point is, especially in 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of confusion in 1 Corinthians. What do we have now and what do we get later? The Corinthians were what we call pneumatics. Uh, I don't want to call them charismatics, but they were people of the Spirit and they believed that everything God promises is to be enjoyed right now. And Paul says you're wrong. There's the already and there's the not yet. And we live between the ages. And in 1 Corinthians, you especially get this eschatological teaching of how to live between the ages. You live in this world, your feet are firmly planted on the ground, and yet your head is in the heavenlies, and you can see Christ coming soon. So your hands are on the plow, you're doing the work of the day, you're serving your neighbor, you're loving your friends and family, but you're eagerly longing for the next age, which is right on the dawn of happening. Paul says in Romans that it's just right before dawn. The sun is ready to rise, like Amen Bible study normally. When it's dark, when you come in, light when you go out. We're right between the ages. And that's the way that they're supposed to be living as men who know that the end is coming. Therefore, why are you going to trouble yourself over whether you have 
$2 million in your retirement account or $4 million in your retirement account? Would you please tell me how much difference does that make when Jesus comes back? Or you're going to worry about whether you go on to your third marriage or just remain single. And you get all worked up over it. Paul's saying, what difference does that make? Really, in view of the shortness of time, live as a man who knows the season. And the season is we're between the ages. And we know that everything, all the pleasures, human pleasures, are coming to us when the morning dawns. And that's where we are. So the end is near. Notice thirdly, in verses 32 through 35, that we do well to remain single, not only because we avoid worldly troubles and the end is near, but it helps us to stay focused on the Lord. It helps us to stay focused on the Lord. He says, I want you to be free from, and look at verse 32, the word anxieties. He doesn't, this word anxieties here, miram no, is not um, uh, nervous anxiousness that you can take a drug for, uh, and if you need them, take them. But this is a sort of anxiety, it might be better translated concerns or cares. And he's saying, I want you to be free from the cares uh, that distract you from the Lord. And he here describes it. He says, a man who is married is anxious, that is, he has cares about worldly things, how to please his wife. He better if he's married. And look, his interests are divided. So he's got a wife, and he's got to be devoted to her and put her on a pedestal and make her number one. That's his job. But then he's got a number one up here. So he's got two number ones, one in this life and one in heaven. And of course, this number one trumps this number one. But Paul is saying there's a tendency to get your devotion divided. He says the single person has it a little easier. They don't have a number one in this life. They've just got the number one. Now, one of the best examples of this would be the text I cite here, Luke 10, with Martha and Mary. Martha was actually my kind of gal. She loved to serve and take care of people. And she was really, really good at it. She obviously was hosting Jesus' luncheon and doing a dang good job at it. And Mary was her little assistant, her sister. But Mary found herself at the feet of Jesus listening to every word He said. And Martha got all upset. And the word is distracted. And she said, and she was angry. <clears throat> and she said, Jesus said, what's wrong, Martha? She, she said, Mary won't come help me. And what did Jesus say to her? Mary, you have many, Miriam, no, you have many concerns, many anxieties. In other words, Martha, you're distracted. Mary has chosen the better portion. It will not be taken away from her. She's got her eyes on the Lord. Leave her alone. So Martha, with all of her, all of her wonderful traits that we all enjoy, was allowing herself to get distracted, and then she was trying to distract Mary too. So marriage has that tendency. Watch out, gentlemen. Be sure that as you devote yourself to your wife and your children, that your, your Lord is not being neglected. Be sure that your wife and family know that he's number one. And if he is number one, they ought to be a whole lot better off. But Paul is making the point here that one reason that we need to elevate the single life is because the single man is in a place where he can stay more focused. And I've seen this, for example, with John R. W. Stott, the great ex uh, biblical expositor who went home to be with the Lord several years ago, traveled the world, probably the greatest expositor in the English language in the 20th century wrote commentary after commentary, many of which we've used in here. A single man, all of his life. You say, well, he must have been gay. You must not be reading your Bible. Some people actually take this seriously who are heterosexual, who believe that the single life is a noble life and that it's very useful and that you can give yourself away to the Lord in ways you couldn't and He couldn't have if He'd had the obligations of marriage and children. He just couldn't have done the work that He did. And he devoted himself to it. That's very admirable. And it should be elevated in the church. Likewise, some years ago, some of us men took our newly graduated high school daughters on a trip to the Middle East. And we went to Egypt and went to the pyramids 
and to the Egyptian Museum, which was worth the price of, of the whole trip right there, went across the Sinai wilderness, climbed Mount Sinai together at 3 o'clock in the morning to see sunrise at 5.30. And uh, that was an A-women Bible study up there, by the way. And then came up along the Jordanian side before we entered Israel. But before we entered Israel on the Jordanian side, we asked uh, the uh, inimitable Aileen Coleman, who's been a missionary to the Muslims for over 50 years, the Bedouins, to come and spend some time with us before we cross the border into Israel. Aileen Coleman, this woman who is an amazing missionary, some of you know her, uh, and she has led hundreds of Bedouins to faith in Jesus Christ over the years. She's single. And we had her come and just talk to our 18-year-old daughters about what it means to be a godly woman. And of course, in that discussion, they wanted to know about her romantic life. She's had offers. She thought about them seriously. And she intentionally turned them down because it would take her away from her devotion to the Lord and her service to those who have uh, lung diseases among the Bedouins. She loves the Bedouins. And it's not as though that she, she doesn't have any sexual desires. I don't mean to be uh, saying anything inappropriate here. But it's not as she's fully a woman. She has all the desires that any of us have. She just kept her life focused on the Lord and what she believes He's called her to do. She's been benighted by the Queen of England and by the King of Jordan. She's received many honors. But that, that still doesn't, uh, that itself doesn't cause a person to want to be single. The serving the Lord and delighting in Him, that does. Let's elevate what the Apostle Paul here is elevating. Now, in verses 36 through 38, he goes back to his main point here, which is we are free to marry in the Lord. You can see that, as I said uh, uh, last week, Paul is making a backdoor argument for the legitimacy of marriage. And that back door is by elevating the single life. After having elevated the single life, now let's come in and legitimize the married estate. That's what he's doing. But you don't legitimize the married estate by assuming or suggesting that everybody ought to be married or every, only the married people here are going to be happy. Sometimes we give that impression. We feel sorry for the single person. Paul is saying, no way, Jose. You've got it, you've got it inverted Let's put the single life up here where it belongs and then let's legitimize the married life and live out a holy married life. He says, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, he means sexual passions there, and if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. That is, you're free. Let them marry. It is no sin. And here we see again the argument for contentment. And in Hebrews 13.4, I cite that passage there. The writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all people. So yes, we, we are to elevate the single life in a way in which we don't in the 21st century in the evangelical church. Let's elevate the single life and then let's give honor to marriage and the family and let it be held in honor among all people, single and married alike, old and young alike. Everybody honor marriage and the nuclear family. That's what's being taught here. Then lastly, uh, Roman numeral 3, verses 39 through 40. We are free to remarry in the Lord. Free to remarry in the Lord. Now here, he's not talking about the virgin or the betrothed, young betrothed woman. He's talking about a widow. And this would apply to widowers as well. He says a wife is bound to her husband, that is, obligated, as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, that is, single. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. So once again, Paul's elevating... The single life. But he's saying, we're free to be married. And there's nothing wrong with it. And it's not a second class status. And furthermore, is to be held in honor among all people. To be re respected and supported in the church. Now, I've signed it here for us a statement from the profession of our faith uh, at Second Presbyterian Church on the chapter on marriage. And here, a paragraph on remarriage. It just succinctly restates what we had printed for you last time. And it basically is saying this, 
If we are divorced, we saw last time that we must assess whether there are lingering ethical, moral, or legal, or financial obligations. Any lingering obligation is to be fulfilled by us. If we've been divorced or separated without what we call biblical grounds, that is, there's been no adultery, there's been no irreconcilable desertion in the view of your church leadership, just little spats, but no irreconcilable, irremediable desertion, neither that nor adultery, then there are no grounds for the divorce. So if you have a divorce on non-biblical grounds, you do have a lingering obligation. You're not loosened or freed to remarry. You must remain single, which has an elevated status, or to be married, remarried back to your spouse. Now, if in the meanwhile, we said, if she takes up with another man, she has then committed adultery and broken the lingering obligation for you to wait on her. Or if you pursue her, and with the help of your church leadership, make the point to her that you really want her to come back, and she unrepentantly refuses to over a season of time, you could conceivably consider yourselves irreconcilably deserted, and therefore no lingering obligations to wait for her. So if that's your status, then you're free to remarry. If, at the same time, your spouse dies, obviously at death, the wedding vow is broken. Uh, the, wedding, the obligations of the wedding uh, uh, vow is uh, over. I know some people who believe that marriage only once, and if my husband dies, that's it. Fine, single is an elevated status. But I don't agree with the reasons. You're not bound to a dead man. You're not bound to a memory. Paul says you're free. Now, in your freedom, if you want to remain single, fine. But don't teach the rest of us that when our spouse dies, we're not to remarry. That's what the apostle is saying here. He says, you want my advice? Stay single. But it's not a command. And you're free. And it's not second class for you to get remarried. So he's saying, this is how you remarry. Now, what about the case, I'm often asked this, where let's say that a man commits adultery against his wife. She divorces him. So it's on biblical grounds. The question, can he remarry? He's the offending party. He, if you will, caused the divorce. Now is he free to remarry? Technically, I would say yes. Ethically, technically, yes. Why? No lingering obligations. It was his fault, but the marriage was dissolved on biblical grounds. Now, there are a lot of pastoral questions and practical questions to be asked. For example, you committed adultery once. What makes me think you're not going to do it again? Have you expressed your sorrow and asked for forgiveness from your former spouse for what you did? Have you received pastoral counseling, maybe psychological counseling, to figure out why in the world you did such a thing in the first place? In other words, not only are you uh, uh, eligible biblically, but are you suitable for remarriage? There are a lot of suitability questions, and you see that in the definition here from our confession. So there are all kinds of important questions, pastoral questions, that need to be asked. But technically, what you're asking is, are there lingering obligations? And in the case of a widow, there are no lingering obligations or a widower. Now notice the last phrase. He says, uh, the last phrase of verse 39, only in the Lord. Now, most of us have been taught since childhood that when we get married, we're to marry someone in the Lord. And this means someone who really knows the Lord, not someone who says they know the Lord. Someone who really knows the Lord, has received salvation by grace through Christ, and who is walking with Him, who's alive, spiritually alive. You put two live people together. You don't marry a live person to a dead person. That's a bad marriage. And there are folks who are trying to do that all the time, as though it doesn't matter. Look at the argument here. He's talking to experienced married people. These are the older saints in the church who are widowed. And he's saying, you, in your senior years, you can only marry in the Lord. And I know some 75-year-olds who think, well, you know, I did the thing. I've raised children, grandchildren. And <clears throat> basically now I'm just at, you know, in the back nine. You know, and it doesn't matter much what I do. Oh, yeah, it matters what you do. 
You don't dare marry, but in the Lord. Why? Because you're uniting yourself to another person. And in Malachi chapter 2, you'll see the argument. Malachi excoriates Israel because they've decided to leave their old wrinkly Jewish wives behind and get some of these new Palestinian chicks. And he says to them, first of all, you've got a problem with divorce. But secondly, you've got a problem with marrying unbeliever and bringing them in, he says, into the sanctuary of God. What is the sanctuary? It's the place of worship. What's our sanctuary? It's the people of God. So when you marry someone, unite yourself to them, you're bringing them into the sanctuary, and if they're unconverted, you're corrupting the sanctuary. That's one of his arguments. And it's highly offensive to the Lord. So whether you're a young guy or you're an old geezer, and you're marrying someone in your 70s, come on now, look what he says. Only in the Lord. So be careful. I'll never forget a widow that I dearly love, and she was getting remarried. And, you know, so she's in her 70s, and marrying a guy who's a little bit older than she was. And he came from another... Uh, uh, church and I said to him you know this is one of our gals you're taking <laughs> he said yeah yeah pastor I know I said and I just want to be sure you're going to take care of her spiritually and uh, he was from the, uh, he had an Episcopal background and he said pastor I promise to read daily prayers from the prayer book every day I said okay you can have her <laughs> and about three years later he says we've been having prayer every morning before breakfast and I'm just so grateful. You know, here's a man who took his responsibilities seriously to marry in the Lord. She married in the Lord. And he took his responsibility to nurture this little girl in her 70s, nurture her very carefully like he's supposed to do. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Until you draw your last breath, whether you're single or you're married, it's all to be in the Lord. And ultimately, we find our contentment not from our marital status, either because we're free as single people or because we're obligated in deep relationships as married people, that's not where we find our contentment. We find it from the Lord, and from that contentment, we go and serve, either as a married man or a single man, and there's no status that's higher than the other. They're both elevated in the Lord before the face of the Lord. I believe that's what he's teaching about sexuality. It's all in the Lord. Remember, the purpose of your sexuality, twofold. Number one, glorify the Lord with your sexuality whether single or married. Number two, serve your neighbor with your sexuality, whether single or married. You just simply use your sexuality in different ways as a single man or with regard to women who are not your wife than you do in expressing your sexuality to your wife. But it's still your sexuality being expressed in a world that needs men. Please, we need men who will be men who are pleased with the way God has made them and who have themselves under control to be servants to their neighbor in a way that glorifies the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the way that You made us, and thank You for the calling that is upon our lives to follow Jesus Christ as married men and single men. Thank You that You have sanctified every organ in our bodies, and You have sanctified our minds and our hearts, our whole lives, our lives being set apart to serve You and to serve our neighbor. We thank You for the teachings of Your Word and pray that You'll give us a real joy today in putting it into practice. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.